Hello, I am Anna Bishler and I am a medication safety pharmacist working within the specialist pharmacy services. Today I am joined by Lance Watkins. He is an intellectual disability psychiatrist and within this podcast we're going to be focusing on those regulatory regulations related to valproate prescribing that are new and for the next few minutes we'll be discussing the impact that these recent changes have had uh, related to safe valproate prescribing and, and the impact that they have for patients with intellectual disabilities. During these discussions, we're, we're planned to explore considerations that need to be made as healthcare professionals when we are reviewing these patients, um, when we're looking at the pathways related to safe valproate prescribing for these patients, and how we can take steps to embed these new regulations safely into our practice. So Lance, I'm going to hand over to you. Um, if you can just perhaps start by discussing why it's so important to have intellectual disability as a key consideration when we're, when we're looking at how to implement these new regulations. Thanks, Anna. I think um, the big challenge in trying to respond to regulations in any, any uh, reasonable way, whether that's developing a protocol or pathway within our health boards, is to consider firstly, when the regulations were developed, what populations were considered. And I think within that, there's a vast array of people who perhaps weren't given due consideration um, in terms of the impact these regulations are going to have for them on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and one of those groups is people with intellectual disability. I think the regulations have not considered the role of capacity and whether people can make choice based on informed consent. Uh, and they haven't really considered the impact of some of the discussions around contraception and sexual relationships and how they may impact on people with intellectual disability and not just the person but also their family and regular discussions around them we know can be quite distressing and have a psychological impact that can be long lasting particularly if it's a persistent question that needs to be asked so we're trying to respond to a regulation that hasn't considered the population that we're, we're working with and we have to think about, okay, how do we best address this and how do we fit that response in with those regulations? And I think um, ideally in whatever working group or task and finish group that's set up to respond to these uh, regulations, we need to think about how do we get the views of people with intellectual disability over in that uh, environment and how do we discuss that and respond to it and make sure that they're incorporated in any um, outcome. Um, ideally, that would be involving people with intellectual disability and epilepsy, so they have lived experience, um, they can tell us exactly what the impact may be for them on a personal level and their families can input. Now, practically that's challenging to implement because one, the regulations are very rigid, so we have to respond to the regulation themselves, so we can't really deviate massively. Um, secondly, um, do we know a big population of people with epilepsy and intellectual who want to engage in that? And the ethical considerations around the impact of that is difficult. And also there's the timing of how quick we have to respond to the regulation. So I think all of that kind of deters um, that response, although it'd be ideal. So at the minimum, we need to involve healthcare professionals and even social care professionals who are working with people with intellectual disability, who have a good knowledge around the impact of what these regulations may have and how we may respond to it. I think if we think about the population of people with intellectual disability, it's small and most clinicians won't have regular contact with people with intellectual disability. So if we take 
the general population. We're talking about 2% of the general population, 1.5% really have contact with services. And then we're thinking about within that, who has epilepsy, who may be prescribed Valparate. So the actual percentage of people who will be impacted by these regulations is small, but the impact is potentially massive for them, not only in terms of their treatment and risk that comes with lack of treatment in terms of adverse outcomes from seizures and sudden unexpected death, but the complexity of discussing sexual relationships with someone who may not have capacity to make those decisions and may not be in a relationship or ever be in a relationship, and then the knock-on psychological sequelae that comes with that. So the actual response is quite challenging in terms of how we implement it as opposed to what the question is itself, really. Absolutely. And I think one of the key messages that you, you touched on there is about having um, that representation and those thought processes very early on in um, when making these decisions related to these new regulations. And you mentioned there it's about having a representation on those short life working groups that have been set up. And if you can't get adequate representation either from specialists or from patient groups, you know, ideally, then it's about seeking that out, isn't it? So that you can make those considerations at a very early stage. Um, and I think, Lance, for, for those people with intellectual disability and learning disability, there's likely going to be a need for exemptions um, for special circumstances when we're undertaking that evaluation of their risk of pregnancy, which I think you've touched on already. So can you just talk through with us some of those principles that um, us as healthcare professionals, we need to be aware of to make our practice safer and to include those considerations? Yeah, so I think, so this is the key to everything really. and. Um, considering what that impact of the regulations may be and how we manage that so it's fair and equitable for people with intellectual disability and that they're represented. So um, if we think of the new regulations, there are changes which will definitely impact upon clinicians and workload and how we manage prescribing Valparate. But the actual core of what the regulations are doesn't change massively for the person with epilepsy and intellectual disability. So we have to reflect back, I think, to the original regulation implementation and think, how have we responded to that? And I think at present, health boards or clinical governance groups, however, whichever area we're working in, are responding far more robustly to the new regulation as until perhaps they were previously, although the principles as they remain the same. And we have had lots of work nationally um, and collaboratively to working with people with intellectual disability and epilepsy, working with all the Royal Colleges to develop that consensus of opinion as to, okay, what is appropriate for this population and what is appropriate to implement and how can we think about implementing this regulation in, in a safe way, but also in a reasonable way. Um, for each individual. And if we think about people with intellectual disability and epilepsy, I think there's two key groups that we can classify people into. Now, obviously every decision has to be person specific and there'll be different circumstances on an individual basis. And I think that's down to uh, the specialist to identify those circumstances and make decisions based on the information available. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about the role of the specialist later, but, if we basically think about risk, which is what the regulation is, is there to, to manage, then the risk is, is there a risk of pregnancy or is there not a risk of pregnancy? And then it's for the specialist clinician to work with people with intellectual disability and epilepsy to 
consider that risk and identify where that person may fall within risk categories. So if there's a risk of pregnancy in any way, um, based on the information available, then we follow the usual route. And if someone's prescribed Valparate, they require involvement in the pregnancy prevention program, and we follow the regulation as stated. Now, the big difference that we've, we've fought for for people with intellectual disability is that, is there an exemption to this rule that makes it inappropriate and makes the impact more negative than positive. So are there people perhaps who lack capacity, not only to consent to their medication prescribing and, and all that comes with that, but also to consent to sexual relationships. So those two key factors around capacity are core to any decision-making, but that's not the only key because the way the regulation is worded, we also have to think about not only if someone can make informed decisions, but what is the risk? So when a clinician is assessing someone based upon their intellectual disability and the impact of these regulations, they also have to think about what is the environment and what is the level of risk of pregnancy? So we have to consider firstly, does the individual have capacity to make informed decisions around medication prescribing, uh, medical treatment, and sexual relationships and within that is there a framework around that person to keep them safe and so the risk of um, becoming pregnant is minimal to none be that in family environment with 24-hour support or in a specialist care provider or other professional care setting where there's 24-hour support and i think we need those two key factors which is really important um so having one without the other still potentially poses risk and that makes clinical decision-making um, more challenging then. So thank, thank you, Lance. And I think what you're saying is that the challenges um, with this particular patient group and the, the need for individualised um, risk assessments based on when these patient groups need these exemptions from, from that, and that's based on um, a good consideration of the associated risks. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned there is this term specialists and uh, something that we have feedback from the system is that people are struggling with this term of what is a specialist um, and the struggle is uh, within the new regulations across the system. But in particular, could you just um, explore a little bit more about what this challenge of the term specialist is when we are looking at those patients with intellectual disabilities? Yeah, I think I agree. I think. The term specialist is a challenge to understand what do we exactly mean like it's quite it's very vague and so the mhra do outline what they mean by a specialist just generically in terms of the regulation but i think this is a more specific population that requires a different skill set to understand what their needs are and to assess risk so i think we have to think about within our own teams and organizations what do we think is an appropriate level of specialism so Certainly, consultant psychiatrists working with people with intellectual disability and epilepsy is a specialist. And then we have to extrapolate from there who else we think may be appropriate. I think this it would be a huge challenge to start asking generic services um, and even primary care to start assessing risk in people with intellectual disability and their valid prescription and who should be on the pregnancy prevention program or not and trying to, try and, extrapolate and stratify what risk is there and how do we do that and how do we keep an eye on that risk so i think there's going to be a need to change how 
services are managing people with intellectual disability and epilepsy. We need to ensure they're under a specialist with regular reviews, and um, which would include the annual risk acknowledgement form in whatever um, form that becomes available. So it wouldn't be appropriate for people with intellectual disability and epilepsy or people with intellectual disability prescribed valparate for any other indication, whether it be mood disorder or migraine, whatever the indication, to be sitting solely in primary care, for example. Uh, if they're sitting in other specialties, such as neurology, I think that's going to depend on that service and that individual and their expertise and familiarity working with people with intellectual disability. There's, there's lots of neurologists who have worked with people with intellectual disability for many years. They're experts in genetic epilepsy, so I think they'd have a lot of the skill sets to understand that risk. But they still may need support from people from the learning disability services. So assessing mental capacity for people with intellectual disability is something people working in learning disability services do all day, every day. It's a core part of our business. But we know that when we go into other services in secondary care, people don't quite have the clear understanding of firstly what the Mental Capacity Act is and how that influences a person's ability to make a decision and what impact it has on, on someone. And so I think you need that core knowledge in order to be able to, to make decisions. So that makes it key to have that intellectual disability specialist at least involved in developing the pathway and then having some kind of protocol to access support as and when needed by professionals. So at least they know where to go for that support. And if someone's under secondary care or primary care, at least we can know, okay, where do I link in to get the support I need? Do I need to refer to a specialist in intellectual disability um, or do I just need a discussion? And then we can look at how, how we implement whatever, um, pathway we're going to go down, whether we need to um, ensure someone is on the pregnancy prevention program or whether we say they're exempt or whether we're kind of a little bit stuck with where we are, because not all decisions are straightforward um, and there may be risk associated with some of them. I think that's where the experience and expertise of a consultant in sexual disability psychiatry comes from, because we're very familiar with looking at community settings how things uh, work in the community, how much support someone has and how they interact. Um, and I think sometimes in acute care settings, you don't have a familiarity with that, that side of care. Thank you, Lance. I think you have come through a, a whole load of myriad of, of considerations that everyone's going to need to put forward as part of their review. So those who are in these short life working groups to put these new regulations in place, there's a lot um, of information that you've given there that needs to be considered. But as you've said, this is quite a big impact on the service and potential service changes. Now, we're very lucky now to be joined um, also with Maria Vincent, who is a GP specialist in learning disability medicine, uh, and you run a learning disability medicine service, Maria. So bearing in mind everything that, um, firstly, sorry, welcome, and bearing in mind everything that Lance has said, um, can you expand a little bit more on what you think the service impact might be um, in the future? Yeah. 
Sure, I mean, I suppose they're, they're multitude, really. I mean, the first thing is the uncertainty for the GPs if you have two separate specialists um, to, to be able to then confidently prescribe in primary care and perhaps the current system is set up where perhaps they may only have experienced um, advice from one person. Um, then, uh, you know, sort of, do, do you then have to wait until somebody's seen a second um, individual before you're allowed to continue the repeat prescribing? Again, it would be quite dangerous as somebody who is, um, you know, sort of on medication for epilepsy on medication, which is potentially a mood stabiliser, to then go without their medication. I mean, um, so I think that that's that's one issue. I think the other issue then is, you know, where is the burden for prescribing going to lie? Because it may be that some consultants um, quite understandably take an executive decision that actually for, um, you know, for the short interim period, while there's um, an adjustment um, to the new service, that um, they are going to, um, you know, permit ongoing prescribing. But then if I just get sent back to primary care then then you know you're going to get potentially inevitable delays where this uncertainty exists and what that will lead to then is patient frustration because people will be accessing primary care for their prescriptions to only find out perhaps that you know it's going to take longer to process them and then as I say you know it's potentially you'll be dealing with um you know unhappy patients really um so I think that's that's one issue um I think you know another issue really is that um uh, that, that there's potential for miscommunication here as well because um, you know it's very difficult to know whether or not this information how clear it's going to be um, you know sort of what's going to get communicated back is there going to be a standard um, letter is there going to be some sort of shared care protocol that actually states that um, you know this has all been done and that all of the requirements of the MRHRA have been met um, so I think that's an issue as well um, and the other issue is you know what is the role of general practice in supporting the management of this. I mean, one really big issue here is the fact that um, the Learning Disability Health Review at the moment, although it, continue, um, it considers um, uh, epilepsy and the management of epilepsy and medication um, you know, as part of the review, there's no specific section addressing um, either ARAF or um, confirming or negating whether or not um, the, the terms of um, ARAF have been met for some individuals um, and whether or not the MRHA regulations have have been acknowledged or not. So, so again, you know, there's this potential in the current system for individuals to slip through the net because this may not be considered at all, all GPs. Thank you. Did you want to expand a little bit more on from a primary care perspective about what considerations they might want to take now or what actions they might want to take now to get involved um, to preempt any future kind of challenges to the system? Is there anything that um, our primary care colleagues can do to get involved to support further work. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose it's really active engagement in the training process, isn't it? I mean, active engagement in any training packages that are available, um, making sure that the, the health boards actually roll out those training packages well to general practice so that, um, you know, in this protected time for those things to be done so that GPs can actively engage. Because what, what you do find at the moment, you see general practice, like every other speciality, is in, incredibly busy. And what you will find is that, you know, you'll get, a, you'll get an email, but there's no protected time to actually do any of that important um, you know, sort of CPD or work that's required. Um, and so then, you know, the risk is that, you know, you've got a, um, a busy practice where perhaps, uh, although it's, you know, it should be a priority, uh, the clinical things take take over and then, you know, the required training isn't, isn't accessed. And I think that's a real big barrier. 
Absolutely, and taking the putting the time and the resources in to where the um, the impact is seen. So the regulations, what where the impacts are seen, and putting the time and resources into um, those areas. So thank you very much. Um, is there anything, any kind of key messages that you would like to leave our listeners on? I think for for me, the key messages are, I think, Lance, to begin with, we're, a lot of us are on the beginning of this journey. And I think even listening to everything that has been spoken about here, one of the key messages that I will take from this is the importance of ensuring that intellectual disabilities is considered at all of these planning meetings at a very early stage. I think we just don't want to get too far down the line of making service changes or changes to processes without having fully considered this patient population group. Um, I totally agree and I think um, I think that's reflected as well in what Maria said and some of the challenges that will be faced and uh, I mean the biggest fact is that we have as many representatives from different sectors as possible so that when we're developing these um, task groups then um, wh wherever they're sitting we need primary care representation to understand the needs there we need all the secondary care sectors that will be impacted upon and we need intellectual disability representation to have that specific knowledge around what that impact will be um, and then working together because mm -hmm. I think Maria's right around prescribing and you can imagine the concerns of GPs will have say, oh, we're now taking on all this prescribing and extra responsibility. And then I think we're trying to get consistency across the board. And that's something we strive for. So I cover three different health boards. So we're trying to make sure that the impact for people with intellectual disability is consistent across the board and no one's um, having a, more of a negative impact. And, and to do that may be different in different areas. So some areas may have specialist prescribing, some may stay in primary care, but the key is oh, whose role is it to prescribe and who's got the responsibility for managing risk and are, is everyone involved happy with that plan and is there is it implementable in a, in a practical sense? Yeah, and I suppose I mean, um, you know, how is it communicated? Because you know, I mean, if it, it, you know, if it's really clear and there's a really um good document that just you know comes out of clinic that's that's obvious that that can be flagged up in the notes, that that's one thing. But if you're you're then looking through potentially you know patient letters to look to see if the information again you know sort of in a very busy general practice setting, then that may not be practicable. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your experiences um, within your clinical services. But everything that you have mentioned there, I think, is very applicable and translatable to any um, well, health board or ICB within England. And I think it's learning that we need to address these challenges, recognise them um, and just kind of address each and every one as we move through this journey. It's not going to be solvable, you know, from right from the very beginning, but we just need to ensure that we make those considerations at a very early stage. So thank you very much um, both to Lance Watkins, Maria Vincent, thank you very much. All that's left for me to say is that um, related to the safe use of Valprate, you can find additional support and resources on the SPS website. If you haven't yet registered with the SPS website, you might want to do that. When registering, you can opt in to receive emails and updates about future events and resources on medicines related topics, and you can register there on the SPS website homepage. So from myself, Lance and Maria, 
it's goodbye from us. <laughs>